Well, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Psalm 3, Psalm 3, and put a finger there and also put a finger in 2 Samuel chapter 15, because as we've been going through this series together, we're going to be going back and forth through this particular text of Scripture, comparing the events of 2 Samuel with the words of David as he reflects on those events in the book of Psalms. Now, last time we saw David was several weeks ago, and as we saw him then, at that point, he was, he was learning to respond well, learning to respond in a biblical and godly way when the Lord stepped in and changed his plans. You see, he wanted to move the ark, he did it in the wrong way, and God said no. He wanted to build the temple, and God again said no. And David had to learn what it means to adjust your plans and submit your ways to those of God. And instead, God promised David that he, instead of building him a house, that God would indeed establish for him an eternal throne. And in this narrative, we find before us this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 15, David is in the middle, seemingly in the middle, of losing the very throne that God had promised to him. And as he approaches this day, this particular day that's here in this text, 2 Samuel 15, 16, 17, and 18, his future is wildly uncertain. Now, what's interesting is that you can say in many ways that this is the worst day of David's life. And as we've been going through the low points of his life, we've seen that David has had some pretty rough days. But this day of all days ranks as probably the worst day of his life because of what happened in that day and because of how abandoned he felt by everyone, his own family included. I mean, it was was really a very terrible day. And the divine author of Scripture really takes the, the speed dial with which he's narrating the life of David and he spins it way back and slows the pace way down as he crawls at a worm's eye view through this terrible, awful, horrible, no good, very bad day that David was having, all right? And he spans it out over four chapters. I mean, he gives us an incredible amount of detail for this day in David's life. And the lesson that we're going to be looking at and seeking to draw up out of this text this morning is really this. How do we respond when life takes a turn, and the future is confused. When you look ahead into into your future and find that it's cloudy and hazy and, and you don't know what's going on and it's not at all what you had planned, how do you respond? I think that's an important question for us. It's an important lesson for us to learn in this text here this morning together because I think all of us have been there at one time or another. And it may very well be that you are there in that place now today where you're looking at your future thinking, I don't know what God is doing and I don't know what it holds and it's extremely uncertain. And yet, how am I supposed to think about that here today? There may be any number of reasons why you might look down the road of life and feel really nervous or down about what it holds. The fear of an unknown diagnosis, right? The reality of a job loss, The fear of the unknown at a new job on the other side of that equation. Maybe it's the challenges that your children face at school that are beyond your reach, and the list goes on and on and on, right? 
where there are any number of infinite things that come into our lives that change our plans and change our paths and, and cause us to look down the pathway and say, I don't see clearly, and I don't know what's going to happen next. See, you may have your plans, but as we saw last time we were together, God is apt to change those plans. And when that change results in everything looking ahead, everything ahead looking cloudy or unstable or downright scary, what do you do? And I think that really is the lesson for us that we find together here in Psalm 3. Now, you've probably read Psalm 3 a lot of different times before because it's at the beginning of the Psalms. And if you've ever set out to read through the Bible in a year, you probably ran into Psalm 3 on January 3rd. And so this is a Psalm you've probably run into a dozen times or more in your morning devotions. And it's so easy to look at the, 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 the title that is given to us here by the author of the Psalm and, and look, at, look at that. It says, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And we look at that as we wipe the sleep from our eyes and think, well, that's a bummer. And then we jump right on into Psalm 3 with our cup of coffee and try to get this job done and move on. But I think that it's really important for us to actually stop before we just kind of skip past that into verse 1 and take stock of the information that is being given to us here in this title. You see, you can look at every word of that and draw some meaning from it. We're told that it is a psalm of David. And right away, we find out that this is talking about the king, the chosen one of God, the giant slayer, the untouchable one, the man who seemingly had the Midas touch, where everything he did seemed to come to pass and and everything was going so very well for him. I mean, even, even when he messes up and wants to build the temple and God says no, what's he get out of it? An eternal dominion, right? I mean, this is a guy who, who has a lot going for him. He has an eternal throne promised to him. And yet, look at what comes next in that title. It says, when he fled. That word there, to flee, it's a word in Hebrew that means to run all out. It means to run as fast as you can, as hard as you can, for as long as you can. And for a king to run ever, for any reason whatsoever, was degrading much less if you're running out of a fear for your life because you've lost your kingdom. He's full of fear because of what could have happened next to him. So right away we find that this is talking about David, God's king, on the day when he is running away from the kingdom God had promised him. But who's he running from? Look at there in that that title. It says he's running from Absalom. Now, back in 2 Samuel chapter 13, we find that Absalom had to leave because of a very sordid event where one of his brothers assaulted one of his sisters, and Absalom actually killed his brother in revenge, taking revenge upon his sister, and he had to leave the kingdom for fear of his life. And in 2 Samuel 13, we're told that David mourned every day for his son. This is not just any son, this is a beloved son. In the heart of the king, King David, it longed, we're told in 2 Samuel 13, it longed on a daily basis to go out to Absalom and bring him back in. And here we find out that this one whom he loved so very deeply, now he is fleeing from for his very life. Again, the last two words there of the title, this just drives the stake right through your heart. When he fled from Absalom, 
his son. You see, the source of all this trouble, it's from the most unnatural of sources because sons don't normally try to kill their fathers. I mean, that's not what sons do in a typical relationship, right? Sons love their fathers, and fathers love their sons. This, for David, had to have been soul-crushing. As we pick up this psalm, or as you read this psalm in your morning devotions, you can't skip over all those words there because they set the stage. They set the context for what comes next. You see, this is one of those days, it's one of those nights, really, that as David puts his his pen or his quill or whatever he was using, his charcoal stick to parchment, to write out the words that were on his heart, as he writes there at night, he shouldn't be sleeping. He should be pacing the floor trying to figure this out. But look at what he says there in verse 5. This is all by way of introduction. He says, I laid down and I slept. Whoa! Now there's a revelation. Okay, this is the worst day of his life. And yet David, David's not pacing the floor. He's not laying there counting stars or counting sheep or whatever it was that David counted. David is sleeping. And we ask ourselves the question, how? David, how are you sleeping right now? And when, when you find yourself lost in the middle of the night, wondering how you got here, where to go, what to do, the answer of this psalm is do not fear because there is an answer. And that's David's message to us this morning. And here's his point. When you don't know where to turn, the Lord is the one who will sustain you. And that is the settled confidence that every single one of us must have, not just in the hard days, but every day of our life. And David proves that to us here in this psalm before us this morning, all right? So the first thing that I want us to see in this psalm is found in verses 1 and 2. We're going to find the desperation in the darkness that David felt. The desperation in the darkness, verses 1 and 2. That's really what those verses are talking about. He says in verse 1, O Lord, how how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah, right? Pause there. Well, those two verses, the facts that he's stating don't start out so great. I mean, David is in the middle of the darkest night of his life here. I think it's important for us to stop here and just talk about these two verses for a couple minutes because we've all been here in a similar kind of situation where we are there in the darkness of our bedroom, perhaps, staring up at the ceiling with sleep nowhere in sight, asking ourselves, how did this happen? And what do I do now? You see, from a human perspective, verses 1 and 2, there was no human possible way for David to come back from this and become king again. We jump into things at the end of of this terrible day, And to get the context of why he makes these statements of fact in in verses 1 and 2, to really understand his desperation, we've got to go all the way back to 2 Samuel 15 through 17. Because here we find, again, as I said earlier, David, the great king on the run, literally sneaking out the back door of the city. The way the city was situated, his palace is, is high above him as he leaves the town. And there down in the shadows, he, the greatest of all king of Israel, is creeping out the back door of the city. How how did this happen? And why does David feel this way? 
You see, if you go back to 2 Samuel 15, keep your fingers here in Psalm 3 because we are going to come back here eventually, but I want to I generally track this story for you so you can see exactly what's going on. But over the course of four years, since Absalom had been allowed to return, he had craftily stolen the hearts of the people. And in verses 12 through 13 of chapter 15, we find that this conspiracy was incredibly strong. It says, And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's own counselor, from his city, Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifice. And it says it right here, And the conspiracy was strong. For the people increased continually with Absalom. Then a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Now this conspiracy is so strong, you skip down to verse 18 of the same chapter, and you find that the only people who stayed loyal to David were the people who were not Israelites. I mean, all of his people abandoned his side. In verse 18, Now all his servants passed on beside him. All the Cherethites doesn't say Israelites. All the Pelethites, where are the Jewish people? All of the Gittites, where are the chosen people of God? 600 men who had come with him from where? Gath, the land of the Philistines. They passed on before the king. Then the king, and you just see this little window into David's soul here. He's so broken. Verse 19, the king says to Ittai the Gittite, Ittai the Gittite, not one of God's people, why are you still with me? Go back and remain with the king. And by the king, he means Absalom, the man who has clearly taken over. He says, for you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place because you only got here yesterday. And now am I going to make you wander with me where I go, wherever it is God's going to take me? Go back, take your brothers, and take mercy and truth with you. Whoa. I mean, he is all alone for the most part. He's got people with him, but they're not really his people. Verse 25, you find him parting ways with the symbol of God's presence. Now, bear in mind the fact that this is the very symbol that David had ignored once before. Remember that narrative we talked about way back earlier in his life when he's on the run from Saul? This is the very symbol that he had tried so desperately to get back into the city and learn some, some very important lessons over. Look what happens in verse 25. The king says to Zadok, return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his holy place, his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, David. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him, speaking of God. I mean, this man is just raw in spirit. I mean, he's lost everything and he realizes <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant isn't mine to do with as I please. It's God's, and it belongs in God's place. And even if God's place has been taken over by a usurper, I can't treat this like it's mine. Because he learned that lesson once the hard way with Uzzah, right? We saw that last time. So he sends it back, and he parts ways with the symbol of God's presence that had brought him so much comfort. Verse 30, you get a glimpse of the severity of his situation. David goes up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he goes, his head covered, and he's walking barefoot. Then all the people who were with him covered his head, and they also went up weeping as they went. And David finds out Ahithophel is amongst those people in verse 31. Ahithophel had been David's longtime counselor, according to First Chronicles 27, who was apparently at this point so old that he had retired. 
I mean, here's a man whom David had trusted for the longest, and he finds out that this trusted counselor has turned on him. If you track down some related references here, you'll find that Ahithophel was also the grandfather of Bathsheba. And it's very possible and even probable that here this man is taking his revenge for what David had done to his granddaughter Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. Verses 6 through 16, verse 5, things keep getting worse for David. King David comes to Bahurim, and behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, and he came out cursing continually as he came, throwing stones at David, and all the servants of David, and all the people and the mighty men were at his right hand and his left. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. Wow. Not nice. But he goes on. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed. What's he basically saying? Saul or David, you are getting exactly what you deserve. You are reaping that which you have sown. Get out, get out, you worthless fellow, for God's blessing has departed away from you. And that is the sharpest sting of all to David. And you can see that in verse 9 because of how strongly David's right-hand man, Abishai, responds. Abishai says to the king, Why then should this dead dog, I mean, he's just blunt, Why should this dead dog, Shimei, curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut his head off. Wow, that's a different day. And David said down in verse 11 to Abishai, to all the servants, Behold, my son who came out from me now seeks my life. How much more now should this Benjamite? He's saying, look, if my own son wants to kill me, how can I blame this guy? Leave him alone and let him curse away, for maybe the Lord has told him these things. And perhaps God will look at me in my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing on this day. But, I mean, David's response is, I, I don't know. I mean, let's not react to his charge of bloodshed with more bloodshed. Just leave him go and walk right on. But the sting of Shimei's words, God has left you. Oh, they sink in and they hit David. This is a serious situation. Go back to Psalm 3. We're going to come back to 2 Samuel here in a bit. But in Psalm 3, we're told that the, the, the people coming after him in verse 6 number in the tens of thousands. I mean, 20,000, probably more. He's got a full-on army chasing him. And here in Psalm 3, he's putting pen to paper at the end of a very long, very difficult day, and everyone, including most of his oldest friends and loyalists, have deserted him. See, here's a, here's a day where David woke up at peace in his palace, and as he goes to bed that night, he's not sure if he's going to wake up, if Absalom will catch up, or if he'll wake up at all. He's in serious danger. He doesn't know what to do. A single day, and everything has turned on him. And his future is looking exceedingly uncertain for sure. And as David puts his pen to paper here in these first two verses of this psalm, as, as you see this desperation in the darkness, he clearly begins to structure what's called a lament psalm. Now there are three marks of what a lament psalm is made up of. The first one is basically the enemy is too strong. Number two, the second element of a lament psalm is that the subject is too weak. And number three, the third aspect of a good lament psalm is that God seems to be absent. And in these verses, David is lamenting all three things. He's saying, many are rising up against me. The enemy is too strong. 
Many are saying of my soul, I am too weak. And they are saying directly in the words of Shimei that there is no deliverance for you in God. God seems to be absent. They're increasing, I'm decreasing, and God seems nowhere to be found. That's the hardest part. The charge made by his enemies there in verse 2, that God is not going to deliver you now. God seemed to have abandoned David after having promised him an eternal throne. But, but really, this statement is more than that. It's saying even God can't save you now. This charge, even God will not deliver him, it throws into sharp relief the severity of his trial. You see, he's shattered. And his enemies are so confident that it appears that no amount of divine intervention could help him now. Didn't God just promise him an eternal throne? So what is going on? See, sometimes our uncertainty in our lives can be a long time in coming. We can see the train barreling down the tracks right at our life. But other times, other times the uncertainty catches us completely off guard. Where we wake up one morning thinking things are one way and we go to bed that night thinking they're a different way and we realize this is not what I had planned. Most painful of all, as you look at David's trial, most painful for him and most painful for us, our most difficult days, is the loneliness that comes when you start to wonder, God, why aren't you intervening for me yet? And that, friends, is the very crossroads of life and faith. Because you see, life is hard. It is not easy to live life in this fallen world, and the future is often unclear. But when it is unclear, the latent question in verses 1 and 2 is this, will you still believe? And on those days when you may lay there awake at night, staring up at the ceiling, and you wonder, how? How was God in this? And What are his eternal purposes for this? Or perhaps more practically, your questions are, what am I going to do? And how am I going to get out of this bad situation where there are no good options? See, our faith in the nature of God should tell us always that there is hope and that not all is lost. Because when you find yourself desperate in the dark, does the light of Christ still burn inside you? can, it should, it must. And if it does, then you, you are never alone. And you can believe. And you must believe. Because as long as his light is resident within you, you see, you are not in the dark place. See, in these verses here, there's no word on the spiritual condition of David in verses 1 and 2. These are all just statements of fact, and they're true statements. It looks pretty bad, and that's the truth. So how is David's heart doing as he asks these questions? In the midst of the darkness and desperation of his circumstances, David, it's interesting, he turns around, and he gives us a master class on faith. And that's really the next section here of this psalm. It's the dependence upon the divine in verses 3 through 6. Look what he says in answer to the charges and questions that he has in verses 1 and 2. Wow, this is incredible that he could stack this up against what had just happened that day. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, 
For the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. If you pick up the second section, David begins to tip his hand, and he shows us his spirit despite his surroundings. The scene has completely changed, but so has David. You see, he wasn't afraid. He was confident. He wasn't despondent. He was encouraged. How and why? And those are the key critical questions of this text for us this morning. You see, David David was encouraged not by where he was, but rather by what he knew to be true. Because despite all the darkness of the night, David's faith was entirely unshaken. Why? Because he had hope, because he believed the promises of God. There's a valuable lesson there for us. Because in days of difficulty, you see, it is, it is your dependence upon the divine person and the truth of who God is that will sustain you. When those hard times come and you say, what now? It's the truth of who God is that you're able to fall back upon and depend in and stand upon with confidence, not in yourself, but in the reality of who he actually is. And that's exactly what he does. Here's what David knew. Look at verse 3. He says, I know the promises of God, and I'm going to depend on them completely. And he, he responds by praising God for three different things. He says, number one, I'm grateful for your safety. He says, you are my shield. That shield he's referring to, it's a, a light round shield that was carried by infantry because it could be used to ward off attacks that were coming from any direction. It could ward off the the slash of a sword, the thrust of a spear, the falling of an arrow. This shield could be swung up or around to meet any threat, and no assault could be made upon the one carrying this kind of a shield. And he says, you, you are my shield, and you meet the trouble wherever it may be coming from. He says, I'm thankful not only for the safety you provide, but I'm thankful for the identity that you provide. Look at what he says. He says right there in verse 3, you are my shield. Glory. You see, David's lost his palace, his king, his people, his safety, and his son. All the things that would make a king glorious, David's lost them all. And yet he still makes claim to glory. Why? Not because it's his, but because it's God's. He understands that the, that the Lord is the source of his glory. And he may have lost all of his own, but he's resting not in the glory he's lost, but in the glory of God. He says, you're my safety, you're my very identity. And then he finishes verse 3 by saying, you're also the one who sustains me. He says, you lift up my head to make sure that it does not continue to bow down to the dirt. God, you are the one who sustains me. Verse 4, he says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice. The one who supposedly wasn't capable or willing to help him. You see, David knew better. And he says, I kept crying out to you, knowing that when deliverance did come, it would be by the hand of God. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. His help did come from the holy mountain where God's help was. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 15. It's amazing. We skipped over this. But on his way out of town... Verse 32, he's lost his right-hand man, but here comes his left-hand man down the road, the man that is called in First Chronicles 27, David's friend, the only man who's ever called David's friend. 
It happened as David was coming to the summit, which would have been the very spot where the temple of God was going to be built by his son. Right there on Mount Zion, the holy hill itself. As David is coming to the summit where God was worshipped, that behold, Hushai the archite met him with his coat torn and dust on his head. I love the way that verse starts. We can so easily skip over it in verse 32. It just so happened. It just so happened. That here coming down the road is David's best friend. That didn't just happen. God sovereignly arranged it. And David, he makes a final play here on his way out of town. He says, Hushai, if you come with me, you're going to burden me down. But if you go back to the city, maybe you can offset the counsel that Ahithophel is going to be giving to Absalom. Because David knew what a good counselor Ahithophel was. He says, I need my own man in there to give alternative counsel to try to, tr- try to steer my son in the wrong direction. I mean, it's kind of a desperate move. It's the ultimate long shot. I mean, Hushai, if anyone finds out, he's a dead man for sure. He hears, and he fears the news of Ahithophel's treachery, and he sends in Hushai to counteract it. And David knows if there's going to be deliverance, it's going to have to come from the hand of God by way of this chance, seemingly chance encounter with Hushai at the location of God's house. And so David, he lodges this one hope and then leaves. And I'm sure he almost forgot that he had even done it until later that night, just as David is trying to put his thoughts down on paper. In Psalm 3, just as he's getting ready to lie down, we're told later that night as the story progresses, messengers arrive from Hushai in the middle of the night telling him, look, here is where you need to camp in order to avoid the sword of Absalom that's coming after you. Where Hushai effectively thwarted the counsel of Ahithophel and was able to give counsel that would spare the life of David. And then he sends word via spies to David to let him know exactly what had happened. So now David knows Absalom's plans. The the plan that was sparked by a chance encounter and arranged by the hand of God seemed to work. And deliverance had indeed come from the holy hill because David's calls to God, they hadn't gone unanswered. And the amazing thing is that David has lost control of Mount Zion, but deliverance still comes because God has ordained it. The results there are in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 3. Go back. He gets word that God has seemingly miraculously delivered him because Absalom rejected the good counsel of Ahithophel to go finish David off right away. And he went with the bad counsel of Hushai that David had planted to, no, just give him some space. So in verses 5 and 6, David's able to say, Back up to verse 4. God answered me from his holy mountain via the footsteps of Hushai. Verse 5. So I lay down and slept, and I awoke. For the Lord is the one who sustained me. This is his response. You see, it's not your circumstances that enable your faith. It's what you know to be true about God that enables your faith. Even in the midst of uncertainty, you don't have to lie awake all night besieged by your worries because you know the truth of God. You see, you have a God who cares for you. You have a God who makes promises to you. You have a God who exists outside of time but still condescends to interact with you even though you're bound by time. 
You have a God who sustains you in the midst of trial, who is your shield and your glory. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that trials are automatically just going to be easy for you or for me, but it does mean that our safety and identity, they are secure. Because when everything in the future looks cloudy and insecure, there are, there are certain realities that are rooted in the character of God that you can stand on. And so what do we, what do you know is true? See, when in the darkness of night the questions begin to creep out of their hiding places, again, questions like, God, will you save me? God, how can you save me? Or worse yet, God, can you even save me? In that dark night, you may be tempted to think, God hasn't made me the same kind of promises that he made David, except for the fact that he has. You see, God has made promises to you. He can save you from your dark days because he has already saved you from the greatest darkness that there is. And he did it on the same holy hill from whence deliverance came from David. That same place deliverance came for you. And in that place, through the person of God's Son, He shielded you from His own wrath and the just punishment for your sin. He revealed to you His own glory through the atoning work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He lifts up your head, providing you with an inheritance that cannot possibly ever be forfeited, that is eternally secure, held and gripped in His hand. So, let's go from the greater to the lesser for a moment. If God is capable of saving a sinner and a wretch like you from the fire of a place like hell, the sacrifice of one like Jesus Christ, then don't you think that whatever this trial is, he has under control as well? That's what I fall back on. It's the same logic that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 7. If God could clothe the flowers and feed the birds, don't you think he's up to the task of taking care of you and me? So, what do we do then when we see the fact that deliverance is guaranteed already? It's only left to us then to walk in dependence upon God's divine grace. Like David, our deliverance has indeed come from the holy hill with the result that we now know truth about him and do not need to be influenced by the difficulty of our surroundings. You see, David's desperation in that darkness was met by dependence upon the divine grace of God. And the result in verses 7 through 8 is the deliverance that comes to him in the morning. I love these verses. The picture is one where he's getting up out of his bed after having slept all night safely, having been preserved by the hand of God. And he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek, You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. You see, in the text, it's morning. And surprisingly enough, David is still alive. And there, as we turn the corner into verse 7, we're meant to picture David sitting there early in that next morning in a ramshackle military encampment, smoke fire most likely swirling around, horses nervously prancing, Half the men asleep, the other half on a high alert. And as each man wakes up, perhaps a man like Joab, David's friend and commander, the first thing he sees is his king, a fugitive. But that king has a pen in his hand. And even though he's been driven from his home, and even though seemingly he is surely going to die, he's writing something. And David 
I can only imagine had a smile on his face as he wrote these words, Arise, O Lord, because I know you'll save me. And if I'm Joab sitting in that camp, rubbing sleep out of my eyes under these circumstances, I'm probably thinking to myself, the only thing worse than the fact that he's lost his mind is that I'm stuck with him. Let there be no confusion. When David gets up, he doesn't credit Hushai. He knows who is responsible. 2 Samuel 17, 14. It's important for you to see this. It's amazing the way it's phrased here. We find here that it was God himself who thwarted Ahithophel's better counsel. It wasn't Hushai. It was God. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Why did he say that? For the Lord, look at this, don't miss it. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel. Why? So that David might bring calamity on Absalom's head? No, what's it say? It says, so that who? the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. I mean, who's the actor behind the scenes here? It's God. So very clearly that even in the midst of David's unknown night, God is doing things back in Jerusalem that David doesn't even know about. And yet it is the Lord who is going before him, ordaining his steps, ordaining the way for him to be delivered from this threat. And it's that reason why David, having found out what Hushai had done in verse 7, says, Oh, as I'm getting up off this ground, it's not me that's standing up in the strength of my own hand to deliver myself. No. Who is the one who is arising? It's God. Arise, O Lord. You're the one who's standing up on this new day with new mercies that are new here for today. And save me, O my God. David, an old soldier himself, he purposefully here brings back in this psalm an old Israelite war cry that had been around since the days of Moses. In Numbers 10.35, we, we find the same phrase where the people of Israel cry out, Arise, O Lord, and go before us. David says, You've raised me up from my bed. You've preserved my life through this awful night. And now, God, you have to rise up to finish the task. It's a war cry, really. It's a call to arms under the banner of certain victory from the hand of God. And in the mind of David, I mean, don't miss the fact that nothing has changed. I mean, he's still in exile on the run who is shamed, who has lost everything. And yet even in the middle of that, he's able to say, the conclusion's foregone. And he jumps right into warning his son. He says, oh, God, save me. Why? Because you're going to smite all my enemies on the, on the cheek you will shatter the teeth of the wicked. And at the end of the day, I will know that salvation belongs to you and to you alone, and your blessing will always be on your people. See, this isn't David being vindictive here. He's not calling for the shattering of these teeth out of some sense of revenge. He's saying the imagery there of the, of the shattered teeth, the shattered teeth of the wicked is a, is a way to say that the flashing fangs that so that just yesterday were were so very fearful they've been they've been ripped out of that head those fangs that that threatened to devour me 
when I'm hidden in God's presence, it's like they've been smashed right out. And now there's nothing but a toothless grin. There may be bark, but there ain't no bite. Why? Because God is the one who's going before me. You see here in verses 7 and 8, in the end, David ends up here as he reflects on what had just happened. He ends up where we should all end up. He ends up secure in the knowledge that salvation belongs to God. And that this salvation, it's, it's a blessing to all of God's people. You see, the fact that we've been offered this same salvation... For us, even in the face of hardship and difficulty and uncertainty and, and, and a hazy, cloudy, nasty, nervous, scary future, we can have joy. You see, we can look down that unknown cloudy path and we can say, God, you save. And I know who you are. And I've seen you in action before. And therefore, I will trust you and walk even though I... I don't see what's going to happen. I know you do. And you're the one who goes before me. And you're the one who will arise on my behalf. And even this next morning as I wake up after that rough night wondering what's going to happen next. God, it's not me standing up. It's you who will go before me and continue to preserve me. Now that may not mean that everything's going to be easy on that next day. That may not mean that everything's going to fall into place and God's going to do everything for you. It may mean that God has you on that difficult path for some period of time to teach you lessons and draw you closer to himself. And yet that is all part of his good plan. And the result of knowing that, the result of, of finding refuge in our salvation is that we can look at that future with a smile. That unknown though it may be, despite the difficulty that it surely holds, we know that the victory is already won on our behalf. See, there's a number of passages in the New Testament that tell us how to think in these kinds of days. My mind goes back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 33. I'll just read some of these for you. Where Jesus himself says, Look, don't concern yourself with what you should eat or what you should wear. Instead, seek first God's kingdom. Seek first His righteousness. And everything else you need will be added to you. So I'm telling you, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Every day has enough trouble of its own. You do right and pursue righteousness today. That's what we do in the face of difficulty and uncertainty. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. I mean, the context of what Paul is saying here is hardship for these people. But he tells them, look, rejoice always and pray without ceasing. And in everything, even the hard and uncertain things, give thanks. Why? Because your rejoicing in the face of difficulty is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know what I should do today in the midst of this uncertainty? What's God's will for me now in light of all this? Ha! Rejoice! Why? Because you can trust Him. Philippians 4.4, again, context is difficulty. Paul says, look, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. Why? I love this. Because the Lord is near. And therefore, you don't need to be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with lots of thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And when you do, 
the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, when you find yourself hidden in the reality of who God is, you may not know what the future holds, but you can approach it with confidence, knowing that God is the one who goes before you. And so I think the important lesson for us out of this psalm here this morning as we look at the life of David is just simply this. When you don't know where to turn, the Lord is the one who sustains you. So cling to him and rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and the power that it has in our lives. The world in which we live would look at us in such circumstances that we face and they would not understand how joy could be had, how thankfulness could be resident in the heart of someone who has been hurt so deeply. And yet, because of what you've done in transforming us, in saving us, revealing yourself to us, we see you clearly. And it's because of you and who you are that we can find our safety and security and identity and, and can rejoice even in the midst of uncertainty and difficulty. So, Father, as your people, may we be faithful to do that even this week as we think about that which you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.